open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 17, 1 through 18, Jeremiah 17, 1 through 18. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. While their children remember their altars and their Asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and the open country. Your wealth and, your tre- and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places. For sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from Yahweh. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh, whose trust is Yahweh. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, Yahweh, search the heart and test the mind, to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne is set a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Yahweh, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken Yahweh, the fountain of living water. Heal me, O Yahweh, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Behold, they say to me, where is the word of Yahweh? Let it come. I've not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. Be not a terror to me. You are my refuge in the day of disaster. Let those be put to shame who persecute me, but let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but let, not, let me not be dismayed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Forgive us of our hardness of heart. 
Father, left to ourselves, we see here what we would become. We are wicked and depraved before the holy God of heaven. We cannot hide. We are exposed and left open before you. You are omniscient and know not only our acts, you know our very hearts. And only because of your grace in the new covenant and giving new hearts do we know you at all. And so fill our hearts with praise and turn us afresh from any trust in man or self-reliance to lean wholly onto you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. This chapter is a mix of hard rock and soft soil. To borrow from Jesus' parable, what exposes what lies below the surface so that you know whether you're dealing with rock or soft soil What exposes what lies below the surface is the seed of the Word. As we go into our text, what we see first is the hard rock then of Judah's heart. Her sin, we're told, verse 1, is engraved on her heart. Now later in the chapter in verse 9, Jeremiah will say that the heart is deceitful above all else. It is desperately sick. The heart of man is depraved, wicked, corrupt, evil. The heart of man was described this way, Genesis 6-5, just prior to the flood. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You notice the emphasis, the absoluteness. Every intention, only evil, continually That the flood washed the wicked from the earth, but not wickedness out of man, is plain because after the flood, God says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So this wasn't just a problem then for man back then. This isn't an ancient thing that we've progressed out of. It wasn't just specific to a geographic location. This is the heart disease that we are all not inclined, but positively diagnosed with. Jesus said, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. In and they defile a person, Mark 7 21 through 23. 
And with this, we need to recognize that the way that the Scriptures speak of the heart is much more comprehensive than we in the West often think of. As a man thinks in his heart, or we just read in Genesis 6, every intention of the thoughts of his heart. So the, the heart involves thought, it involves the mind, it also involves the affections and emotions, it involves our volition, our will, our decisions. It encompasses the very core of who we are, out of which everything we do flows. But here, in this passage, Yahweh isn't expounding on this so much as He's assuming it at this point in the text. Put it this way, God is not giving Jeremiah the diagnosis. He's speaking about the prognosis. We're not told the disease. We're told about its development, the point that it's come to. The heart is sick with sin. And what happens when the disease is left untreated? What happens when the heart, which pumps sin, has pumped sin after sin after sin? And the answer is that the sin which flows from the heart is then engraved into the heart. There's a kind of hardening that's being portrayed here. This is why... We're warned often in Scripture, Hebrews 9, quoting Psalm 95, tells us today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion. So here, we, this, these, this is the result of such heart hardening. But it's not the heart being spoken of as a tablet that portrays this heart hardening. The father in Proverbs pleads with his son, Proverbs 3, 1 through 3. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So the heart is a tablet. What speaks to heart hardening is what has been written thereon, what's been engraved into the heart. So here, sin is engraved on the heart. And, and then I think you get a sense for the magnitude of what's being said when you, when you think that though the Scriptures were written and they had writing, this was an oral culture. And so what was written was important and was for preservation and what was written on paper was one thing, but what was engraved on stone, all the more. So here, sin is engraved on the tablet of the heart. Judah's sin is ineffaceable. It's indelible. It is ineradicable. It is engraved on her heart. To use theological jargon... While we are all born totally depraved, Judah has made great strides towards being utterly depraved. When we speak of total depravity, we don't mean that man is as corrupt as he could be. We mean that man is corrupt in his entirety, that, that the fall has impacted every part of his being, or we could say of his heart, his intellect, his volition, his emotions, all of it having been impacted by the fall. 
the heart being wicked, left to itself, what is the prognosis? The heart flowing with wickedness? If allowed to flow as it will, means that the flow will become darker and darker and darker until the sin which flows from the heart is engraved upon it. And then further we're told their sin is engraved upon the horns of their altars, which in one way is a way of expressing the sin that's engraved on her heart, idolatry. These are are altars plural. These are the pagan altars. These are the Asherim. These are the high places. This is not the altar of Yahweh, These are their altars. Now, on Yahweh's altar, blood would be put upon the horns of the altar and numerous sacrifices and offerings. And here, it's as though that act, their pagan idolatrous act, is etching in stone, again, their sinfulness, their sin. So, in a way, then, Sin is not simply etched into their hearts. It's etched into the land. All these pagan altars that are there, they've etched it into the horns of those altars. The grave reality is that this has always been present since the fall, this reality. It's only by the grace of God that we are not more utterly depraved than we are. But as I survey the church, that's that's where you look for what's happening here. As I survey the church today, in many instances, though there may be a veneer of Scripture, a veneer of the Gospel, it is sin that goes all the way to the core that's engraved on the heart. Truth remains on the surface, but a worldly way of thinking and believing and reasoning goes all the way to the core. And this is why I believe we're told, and we see the effects of it, masses of children abandon the faith once they leave the home. I think that's a bit optimistic. I don't think we ever set them up for that failure. They never had the faith to walk away from in the first place. The law and gospel were not engraved on the heart. Rather, the principles upon which the church really functioned have what are, are what have been engraved on the heart. The pragmatism, the the catering to felt needs, the personal desires being satiated and satisfied in some way, the emotional pleasures, these are what have been written on the heart. And thus, when they leave the church, what they do is not abandon the faith. They just leave a disguised idolatry for an overt and obvious idolatry. Such sin has been so engraved into the church, she cannot see it because they are the eyes with which she sees. 
Parents, let us raise our children in the discipline and fear of our God. Teaching them God's words when we rise up and whenever we sit down in church. May we deeply engrave into the spiritual stones that make up this body the only foundation upon which the church can stand, that of her cornerstone, the crucified and risen Christ. And may that go not simply in a superficial way, but to our very core. May we not own the truths of our Lord simply on some document, but in our hands in our minds, and our feet, our eyes. The consequences for Judah's engraved sin are three, but they're unified. They, they all regard the land, blessing in the land, covenant. First, her wealth and treasures are given as spoil. They're given as payment for her whoredom on the high places, verse 3. And to get a sense of what these treasures are, how they relate to the covenant, how they relate to the land, Listen to Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 8. If you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the, work, the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Yahweh will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. Then shall come against you. Uh, one way, and they, they shall come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Yahweh will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and He will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Blessing in the land given to them according to the terms of the covenant. Having violated that covenant, she loses these blessings. She'll lose the heritage also given to her, verse 4, the land of promise. She'll lose not only blessing in the land, she loses the land itself. And the significance of this is she's not merely being chastened as a child. She's being cut off from her inheritance. She's being disowned. And third, in the land they do not know, instead of blessing, they'll be cursed, verse 4, serving their enemies. I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. So instead of being blessed children, they'll be cursed slaves. No longer in the land, but in a land they do not know. You see the reversal of the redemption of Exodus happening here? He redeemed them as slaves to be his children. And now he disowns them as children to be slaves. And on that day, the wicked including everyone who has played church, will be cut off from the land, from every blessing, to forever suffer God's holy and righteous anger. 
the wicked will be taken from this earth, this earth made new and redeemed, where the glory of our blessed Lord illuminates everything. They will be removed from it and thrown into an eternal fire. The intensity and duration of the final curse that's anticipated here is unfolded in Revelation 14 in this way. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured out for full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. My anger, in my anger, a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. The sinner, Scripture authoritatively diagnoses you with this terminal heart disease. And should it go untreated, this is the prognosis. This is where it goes. A hardening in your sin, such that it's engraved on your heart and you have to deal with the holy God of heaven whose wrath righteously burns forever against sin. But there is a great physician who can heal the heart. From the nation as a whole, we go on to two kinds of men. Those who are cursed, trusting in man, and the one who is blessed, trusting in Yahweh. And this recalls the first psalm. Only in the first psalm, the wicked are likened to chaff. And here they're likened to a desert shrub that's out in the desolate places, that's in that salt land surrounding the Dead Sea, this, this shrub that does not see any good come. It doesn't enjoy any rain, any blessing. This is what the man is like who turns, his heart turns away from Yahweh. And in contrast, you have the man who's blessed, who trusts in Yahweh, and he sends out his, he's planted by the streams, and he sends out his roots such that whenever drought comes, he doesn't fear, continues to have green leaves and produce fruit. And you remember in Jeremiah chapter 14, there's a drought under which Judah is languishing as part of God's wrath before the invasion of the Babylonians, and this has come upon her for her wickedness in forsaking the one who's revealed himself as the fountain of living water. Remember, Judah's wickedness has been summarily framed for the entirety of the book. This, this should kind of come to your mind. In chapter 2 and verse 13, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In her idolatry, this is the two aspects of what has occurred, forsaking Yahweh and embracing these empty cisterns that can hold no water. So that's what's being brought out here. What makes the distinction between the one who is cursed and the one who is blessed? It's their relation to the one who is the fountain of living water. 
having forsaken the fountain of living water, turned their hearts away from Him. They're cursed. Following the seriousness of sin then, as we see in verses 1 through 3, and, and this description of these two men, you're being brought by the Word of God at this point to ask yourself, who do I trust? Not nations, not groups of people. You're thinking as, as the Word of God is, has developed here, and it says there are two kinds of men. You have to ask yourself, who do I trust? Do you trust in man? Do you place stock in stocks? Do you hope in technology, government, medicine, science, art, culture, psychology? Do you trust in your intellect, your smarts, your know-how, your savvy, your education? Do you trust in your volition, your drive, your determination, your tenacity, your work ethic, your perseverance? Do you trust in your benevolence, your kindness, your generosity, your charity, your goodwill? All of this is an idolatrous trust in man, in self. It's the lie of the garden and of Babel, the lie of independence. The lie that the creature can somehow be God unto himself. Or do you trust not in man but in God? And, and do you realize even that vague notion in and of itself isn't sufficient? Do you trust in God as you've imagined him or God as he's revealed himself to be? Because the man who's blessed here is the one who hopes in Yahweh. He trusts in Yahweh, the covenant name that God gave His people in revealing Himself to them and establishing relationship with Him of His own mercy and initiative. Do you know God as He's covenantally revealed Himself to be to His people? The question is, do you not, is not whether or not you trust in God, but whether or not you trust in then as He's revealed Himself to be, meaning do you trust in the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fullness of what they knew now in that name Yahweh has come to final revelation in Jesus Christ. Do you trust in the incarnate God-man crucified for sinners and risen as Lord? If you trust in any other notion of God, you're just making stuff up, which is saying you're trusting in yourself, not God. Do you trust in who God has revealed Himself to be? And before you answer this question, and who do I trust? Look at the next verse, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So from the nation to these two kinds of men, now Jeremiah is for us in this passage expounding upon the state of man in general. This is the condition of the human heart. It is desperately sick and deceitful. Shrubs don't think they're shrubs. 
You saw this in chapter 16, whenever Judah responds to the word of judgment given there, asking, why has Yahweh pronounced all this great evil against us? What is the sin that we have committed against Yahweh our God? What is our iniquity? Judah, though sin is engraved on her heart, ask this. Judah, because sin is engraved on her heart, ask this. The heart is not only desperately sick then, it's delusional. And if you don't think you suffer from this, ask yourself, the last time you began to show some signs of sickness, physical sickness, how many of you brushed it aside again and again? It's nothing. And how much more do we do this with our spiritual state? You cannot trust man. You can't even trust yourself. This world tells you, trust your heart. Trust neither the world nor your heart. Trust in God. You need God. Not only if you're to know God. You need God. If you're to know yourself. Because only He can search and test the heart and the mind. And doing so, He gives to man according to His ways. To those who trust in man, they're cursed. Those who trust in Yahweh, they're blessed. Now how does Yahweh search and test the heart? Well, He's omniscient. He simply knows. But that's not what I think is being expounded on here. This is, this is Yahweh actually doing a test. He's testing it. He's, he's making it plain, the condition. You need to realize that unlike the scientist, Yahweh is not running this test for personal confirmation. He's doing this for public vindication. How does He test the heart? Publicly putting on display the condition that's inside. Remember in chapter 6, verses 27 through 30, Yahweh tells Jeremiah, I have made you a tester of metals among my people, that you may know and test their ways. They are all stubbornly rebellious. You see what Yahweh did? He tells Jeremiah, I'm making you a tester. And then he tells Jeremiah what the results of the test will be. He already knows but as a tester, he's making public what he knows. He's making known what he knows. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on. For the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver they are called. For Yahweh has rejected them. How does the prophet test them? By pronouncing these words of judgment. And whenever the judgment comes upon them, all the more it makes obvious by both the word of judgment and the judgment itself that they are not gold or silver. They are some mixed alloy that is worthless. The refining has done nothing to refine except expose 
There is no gold. There's no silver here. It's by the word primarily, both as it is spoken and as it is enacted. It's by the word that they are tested. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 tells us, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. We went from the Word to God Himself with this. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And so I ask again, who do you trust? And don't answer this on your own. Answer it with the Word of God. Romans 10 tells us faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. Faith comes from the Word. Faith is strengthened by the Word. Faith is recognized by the Word. Take yourself to the Word and let God expose your heart. And if your conscience is troubled, and, and I don't know, am I the one who trusts in the Lord? Am I the one who trusts in man? Am I just deluding myself? Let God speak into this. And if you don't know where to go, go to First John because John tells us he wrote these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Don't base this upon any kind of emotion or feeling or experience. Take yourself to the Word of God. By it he searches and tests, makes known what he knows. But for those of you who do trust God, and you believe that He will reward the wicked according to their ways, yet you, do, you ask yourself, as you look around, why do the wicked prosper? And know that they are, verse 11, like the proverbial partridge, gathering a brood she did not hatch that will leave him when they are hatched. The partridge was believed in ancient times to steal eggs and hatch them, which upon hatching would recognize, you're not my mother, and fly away. It's perhaps because of the large clutch of eggs that a partridge laid that this was assumed. We don't know, but nonetheless, as an aside, I have to say this, many will question the validity, the, truthworth the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of God's Word because of this, because the partridge doesn't do this. Well, judging Scripture for, in, along these lines is like judging the history lecturer whenever he says that some empire rose from the ashes like the phoenix. And you think, that history professor believes in Greek mythology. What a loon! Or whenever you're reading a science, you're hearing some scientist lecture and he talks about a sunrise. <laughs> the sun does not circle the earth. What kind of scientist is this? Jeremiah's, Yahweh's point here is not to teach us anything concerning ornithology. This is a metaphor, it's imagery. And the point is eschatology, the end of the wicked 
who have gained their wealth unjustly. Ill-gained Ill wealth is flighty. That's the point. Proverbs warns, do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light upon it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. The wicked who gain their wealth by their wickedness are only incubating eggs that will leave them in the end. Asaph was once envious of the prosperity of the wicked, and we're told that this was so until he went into the sanctuary of God, and then he discovered their end. And so from the end of the wicked, verse 11, at his end he will be a fool, we go to a beginning, verse 12, a glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. So in contrast to the fleeting riches of the wicked, we have the throne of Yahweh, the Ark of the Covenant, set, into the temp- set in the temple, their refuge, their sanctuary. And it has been since the beginning, the idea of this contrast between something with an end and that which has been from the beginning is that one is fleeting and the other is enduring. And it's He then who's the hope of Israel. Well, some people think Jeremiah's prophecies here are kind of a, a smorgasbord, but do you see how this relates to everything that's been unfolded? This is teaching you about the cursed man and the blessed man. It's showing you the futility of hope in man versus the confidence of hoping in Yahweh, the hope of Israel, the one who is their refuge, their shelter, their sanctuary. All who forsake Him are put to shame. Those who turn away from Him are written in the earth. Whenever sin is engraved on the heart, sinners, the sinners whose sin is engraved on their heart, are written in the earth. So while their sin is enduring, they are fleeting, temporary. They don't endure. For those whose sin is enduring, their blessings are fleeting. This is the inevitable outcome of those who forsake Yahweh, the fountain of living water. And then following this, Jeremiah cries out, Heal me, O Yahweh, and I will be healed. Save me, and I, will be, I shall be saved. And so some, quite naturally, connecting this to what has come before in our text, think that he's crying out to be healed because he's realizing the sin sickness of his own heart. There's a kind of humility here. And it makes a great kind of application towards the saints. But I don't think that's the wound that Jeremiah is crying out to be healed from. I don't think it's the deliverance that Jeremiah is seeking because he goes on to speak saying, Behold, they say to me, where is the word of Yahweh? Let it come. So what's the wound? I think it's the same wound he spoke of in chapter 15. Oh, Yahweh, you know. Remember me and visit me and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. 
in your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Yahweh God of hosts. I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? But the difference is that in that instance where there was a lot of doubt mixed into Jeremiah's plea, this one, I think, expresses trust, faith. Reliance on God, not in himself. So it is true that by this Jeremiah is acknowledging not a trust in man, in himself, but in Yahweh. With sin engraved on her heart, those that Jeremiah is speaking to respond to the word of God saying, where is it? Let it come. She has, chapter 6, verse 14 and 8 and 11, declared, Peace, when there is no peace. She deludes herself saying, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, chapter 7 and verse 4. And she is even blasphemously presumed to call God's bluff, saying, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine, chapter 5 and verse 12. In contrast... Jeremiah perseveres. He says, I've not run away from being your shepherd, nor have I desired the day of sickness. It wasn't some kind of sadistic vengeance uh, that was motivating Jeremiah in this. He was being faithful to Yahweh's word, and it was Yahweh's indignation, chapter 15, he said, that stirred him up. Not his own. He's seeking for God to be God. For the man who trusts in man to be cursed and the man who trusts in Yahweh to be blessed. Let those be put to shame who persecute me. Not because of who Jeremiah is in and of himself, but because he's speaking the word of God. You know what came out of my lips. It was before your face. And so let them be put to shame. Let me not be put to shame. Let them be dismayed. Let me not be dismayed. Bring disaster upon them. Destroy them with double destruction. Normally, because of how the Psalms condition us, I mean, this is a prayer that could come right out of any Psalm. Because of how the Psalms condition us, we would expect some kind of expression by the prophet that Yahweh has heard my cry. Or we would expect it because of the way the prophets read. A reply from Yahweh at this point. An answer, a reassuring word to build the faith of his prophet. But in this instance, there is none. And the reason Yahweh doesn't answer is because the answer's already been given, hasn't it? Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh. So this prayer expresses Jeremiah's trust. But left unanswered in this, is if the heart is deceitfully wicked, sick. 
How is it that there's any man who's blessed? If this is the prognosis of the disease all of us are born with, how is it that any cry out to the Lord? If the sin is such that it's going to flow with sin, such that sin is then engraved upon the heart, how can there be any hope of redemption for Judah, any hope for redemption for anyone? And the answer is that before Jeremiah can cry out to be healed for the wounds of his faithfulness, there first has to be a healing of the disease that he was born with. He had to first be healed of the heart disease of sin. All hearts are rock hard. And if the seed of God's word is to find any root, God must not simply cultivate it, but create it anew. Removing the stone and granting a heart of flesh, Ezekiel 36. Such prayers, such faith are a grace from God. They are a gift from God. They're given in the new covenant. Established by the blood of Christ. Take a sledge to the stone of your heart. Try to, to break it up yourself. And all you'll get is a pile of dusty stone. I don't even think that's the most accurate answer. What you really will get is sin engraved on the heart. Because that is just a further act of self-reliance and trust in self. It's just more sin on top of sin. What must happen? Jeremiah 32, Yahweh promises, I will give them one heart. And one way that they may fear me forever, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, that they may not turn from me. Blessed is the man who, uh, cursed is the one who turns their heart away. Why is it that there's any kind of change? Because... He puts his fear in their hearts that they won't turn. Instead of sin being engraved on the heart, he promises he will engrave his law on their heart. Chapter 31. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, No Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Because of our condition, we will never go to the great physician on our own. Our only hope is that he in grace and mercy initiates the operation of his own sovereign will. And sinner... If you think, this causes me to despair. What can I do? Well, don't you recognize that's precisely the point? 
the Word of God has begun some kind of work to open your eyes that you can place zero trust in man. Zero trust in yourself. Your only hope is God and God alone. That you might turn from any kind of reliance or faith or dependence upon yourself. What can I do? Nothing. To a dependence upon God. And if God has done that work, then this command comes to you to be obeyed out of a new heart. In fact, it's the very beating of that heart. As soon as that heart is there, this is the way it behaves. Repent of your sin. All your self-reliance, all your false trust, repent of your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. And the Word says, if you do so, you're blessed. Saints, in light of these truths, may our prayer be that of Augustine's. Accept the sacrifice of my confessions offered by the hand of my tongue, which you have formed and stirred up to confess your name. Heal all my bones and let them say, Lord, who is like you? He who is making confession to you is not instructing you of that which is happening within him. The closed heart does not shut out your eye. And your hand is not kept away by the hardness of humanity. But you melt that which you wish. Either in mercy or in punishment. And there is none who can hide from your heat. Let my soul praise you that it may love you. And confess to you your mercies that it may praise you. Let's pray. Father, I pray we come in confession, not because you are not knowing, but precisely because you are. We acknowledge your Lord and that we have sinned against you. And we look to grace from your hand, not because of anything in and of ourselves, but we trust who you've revealed yourself to be in Christ. Father, grant hearts full of joy and hope and anticipation as we leave this place, as we scatter out into this world to be salt and light. Give us hearts filled with joy and hope and peace, not because of any confidence in who we are or who man is, but because we know you are our God. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary, O Yahweh, the hope of Israel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.